This is episode 23 of the Home and Family Culture Podcast. This is Jody Chafee, and in this episode I interviewed S.J. Barraconi, futurist and education disruptor. Welcome to the Home and Family Culture Podcast, where I discuss how families can discover and design their collective vision, values, beliefs, and traditions that influence their family culture. The purpose of my podcast is to interview experts who can offer tips and tools to aid families in the process of developing their family culture, and also successful individuals whose success was influenced by their family culture. For more information or to subscribe, go to homeandfamilyculture.com or you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Family Culture Podcast and on Twitter at underscore Family Culture. You can tune in on my site or on the variety of podcast broadcasting apps like iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and even on YouTube. Just search Home and Family Culture with the ampersand between home and family culture. Please remember to like, comment, share, and rate on whatever medium you choose. I would love to hear from you. SJ is a CMA, consultant, mentor, and advisor, as well as the founder and CEO, chief encouragement officer of SBSL, an educational solutions provider. He is 41 years old and has been an entrepreneur in the educational field for five years as of the fall of 2016. His business model includes designing and or implementing customizable solutions for business owners to address three deep fundamental problems with the traditional approach to the K-12 college university and also graduate tracks of education in America. He is presently involved or has been actively involved in the following mentorships and or advising programs and organizations. YEA, Young Entrepreneurs Academy, Teen Entrepreneurial Camp, AWANA, OWU's EMF, Econ Management Fellows, Sundown Group's Ask an Expert Program, HECOA's Special Events, ECDI's Professional Advisory Network, or PAN. He is a National Steering Committee member he serves his alma mater, Ohio Wesleyan, OWU, on the Central Ohio Alumni Leadership Board, and is also an active member of a nonprofit board, Jeffet. His favorite pastimes are traveling, reading, 220 plus paper and audiobooks in the past six plus years, listening and watching inspirational content, connecting people who may be may not otherwise have met in the course of time, and being a futurist visionary when it comes to organically transforming the education system for the gig economy age in which we now find ourselves. Awesome. Thank you, SJ, for being here. It's an honor to be here, and I'm deeply appreciative of the opportunity to serve you and your audience. So tell us, what is your perspective of what family culture means to you? Well, I'm going to draw from some common definitions for both culture and family, and then we're going to merge them together. Um, Culture, as defined commonly, is the totality of socially transmitted behavior patterns, beliefs, institutions, and all other products of human work and thought. Okay, and then family is defined as a fundamental social group in society 
typically consisting of one or two parents and their children. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now let's put those together. So in other words, you have a social group with socially transmitted behavior patterns and beliefs. So if you put those together, the social group has beliefs, the group has behaviors. I look at the fundamental definition of family culture as that. And I also would um, highlight the fact that I believe the family unit throughout many millennia of world history is the fundamental unit of society. And when you run the culture through it, you are just perpetuating generation by generation what was left to us by our uh, forefathers millennia ago. And I think it's beyond important to understand these definitions, understand how they work together. Because we are the ones perpetuating those beliefs and behaviors from the generations. Yeah. We are, we are. Um, and I'm going to pull from a gentleman who has now passed. And this quote um, was mostly for, for a business audience, but I think you can paraphrase it and retrofit it for a family audience is Peter Drucker. Mm -hmm. Peter Drucker was attributed to have said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So think about it. What is strategy in a family unit? Strategy could mean multiple things. You know, you're strategizing to get out of debt. You're strategizing for an upcoming move to a different city or state. You're strategizing how you're going to get all your kids between points A, Z, and everything in between. So all those things put aside pale in comparison to the culture. So in other words, you must have a strong culture in a family, in my reason view, in order for the family to not only go day to day, week to week, year to year, but also to perpetuate that to the next generation. And so when you speak, you talk about soft skills. Could you define for us what exactly soft skills are to you? Well, first of all, I would say that for your audience, um, have ever heard of or used actively in a paper, in a conversation, the words people skills, mm -hmm. interpersonal, life, or even indirectly business skills, you actually are also defining soft skills. These terms are pretty much interchangeable. And if I may pull out a term from our English classes from long ago, they are synonyms. I went to a lunch and learn event um, about a month ago here in central Ohio. Mm -hmm. suggested that we record short one to three minute videos on what he referred to as frequently asked questions. And one of my most frequently asked questions is what you asked me, mm -hmm. which is what are soft skills or how would you define them? So would you say then people skills are basically, or excuse me, soft skills are basically like social skills, emotional intelligence, the kinds of things that uh, reasoning skills, would, the, would that be along those lines? Yes. Um, I would say there are probably, the ones you cited are definitely examples. Um, I could throw a few more at you and you, when you mentioned you were, thoughtful enough to listen to my HACOA talk, I mentioned one in there, I think it was in the Q&A, empathy. 
empathy is a huge one because um, sympathy and empathy are very different things. Um, leadership, when done organically, not by position, that's a soft skill. Servant leadership, um, thought leadership is a soft skill. Um, financial literacy, knowledge is a soft skill. Um, character, attitude, um, the ability to dream and have visions, um, conflict resolution. That, these are all examples of social, people, soft, interpersonal skills. Fascinating. So it's okay if our kids are daydreaming sometimes. Absolutely. In fact, since I, I would suspect that most of your audience um, are parents or grandparents, probably one little thing I'll throw out there since one of my services I offer is mentorship is please be sure that you do not pour water on your kids' dreams, okay? There's an old line that says, pour gas on the the dreams and water on the drama. Mm -hmm. So in other words, dreaming and visioneering is definitely a soft skill, and we need to encourage that. So if they say, I want to be an astronaut, a fireman, and a police officer, you should say, great, how can I help you get there? Not, oh, that's not possible. So that is an excellent little sidebar point that I'll make as part of this because it does fit in the family culture. The culture should be based around a dream-centric culture, a visioneering culture, meaning like you should always attach the reality of your family to the vision and never the vision to the reality. Okay, But in reverse, you are... Not really doing a really good job, I'm sorry to say, with your family culture. So besides supporting our, our kids' uh, daydreaming and vision, what can parents do then to support more of these soft skills? And perhaps you can go into more relating it to the type of education that our, ki- our children receive. I came up with seven different tips or approaches, however you like the phrase. I guess the word tips is probably better. Um, for implementation. Uh, Number one, and these are in no particular order, is is what is called a drip approach. In the marketing space in business, they talk about drip campaigns where you reach out to your and you give information to them. We need to do the same thing when it comes we need to do the same thing when it comes to soft skills is we need to do it in small doses it needs to be consistent, and it needs to be over an adult time frame. An adult time frame, I would say, is a minimum of six months, ideally longer. For example, the average pregnancy, what, nine months? So you should be able to do a drip, a drip approach to soft skills implementation in a family culture at least as long as a pregnancy. So when I say six months, I'm actually being a little bit, um, a little bit generous on how fast you can transform things because transformation is a bottom-up approach and you need to, you need to give time for that. You need to water it over a period of time. Number two is you need to keep a scorecard. Anything that you're implementing has to be scored. It has to be tracked. Now I'm not talking about a massive spreadsheet or database here. I'm just saying use your refrigerator Use the, you know, use the, um, put up a dry erase board or put up, um, 
a cork board, um, use the refrigerator, use the walls in your bathroom, or I'm sorry, the mirrors in your bathroom, something where people are constantly in the room, you know, on an ongoing basis, and they see it, and they're doing things that are more, shall we say, repetitive, like brushing your teeth, or pulling food out of the fridge, or, some, or, or something like that. So keep a scorecard. And again, it doesn't have to be complicated, but you need to track these things. And if you don't, it's harder to know if progress is being made. Um, number three, I believe it's important, and I leave this to the discernment of everyone in your audience. I can't tell you how exactly to shape this, but I would recommend disconnecting as much as possible from the mass major media because with all respect to our friends who may be you know, friends of your family or coworkers, wherever you work or, or um, church members, whatnot, the mass major media really is not all that family friendly. And this is not a political stance because frankly, I'm very anti-political. I believe it's civics and civics and politics are very different concepts. So I'm just saying that the mass major media, putting all the politics aside, is really not that family friendly. And it's also more what I refer to as infotainment. So the information that's passed along is really more entertainment based. And the information is really not wisdom centric. Um, so that's number three. So in other words, you don't want to keep a scorecard and have a drip approach and then basically wipe it out by putting the mass media into your house. Okay. Number four, distinguish between leisure and pleasure centric activities, hobbies, and interests. Leisure and pleasure, when you look at the root definitions and you think a little bit about it, are very different. Here's a real colloquial definition leisure activities require some brain involvement. An example would be a reading circle, um, an example would be listening to a podcast um, together. Um, pleasure-centric activities are mostly where you shut your brain off, okay? And there's a role for each of those in a family, but I truly believe that the most strongest family units, ones that I've encountered in my work in the educational space as well as outside of my professional work, are mostly leisure-centric. And doesn't mean that these folks don't, you know, go off and do something that is completely... Um, you know, without thought, it just means that they mostly focus their family on things that require them to collaborate together to, um, you know, think a little bit. And I think that's very important. Next would be a word that a lot of people don't like, but it's very important is accountability. You need peer to peer group and third party accountability. I think all three of them are like layers. So for example, let's say, Let's say we're talking about a family of a mom and dad and two kids, okay? Peer-to-peer -peer would be one-to-one, -one. so it could be mom to daughter, father to son. Then within the group, the family unit is the second layer. And then third is if you have someone who's trusted from outside of the family, a third party. It could be a family member by blood. It could be a pastor or priest. It could be... Um, neighbor, someone who you know will hold you accountable, okay? The best term that I can think of here is Seth Godin, who is a marketing guru, defines what's called a tribe. 
basically what you're doing is you're building a tribe here. And Seth Godin's definition um, is the best that I've seen. And I'll defer your readers to look that up. Or if you like, I can pass along a link. But his book called Tribes is a fantastic book. Next is focus on one skill per month per family member. So for example, at any one time, you let's say you have, again, the, unit, the family unit of four, is you could um, have four skills being improved and implemented with the scorecard and such at any given month. So in other words, work it so you're not overwhelming the family, but make that you are um, improving yourself. And then last but not least is be aware, and this is a great lead into the next question, be aware of what schooling and education are and aren't. Frankly, they're very different. So I like to use an acronym in my family advisory service called CAR. You drive a car, but there's also a car when it comes to family advisory work in the educational space. It's you can complement the schooling, you can add on to the schooling, or you can completely replace it. And replacing, of course, would mean a home education curriculum of some kind. Add-on means they've already graduated, but they're still under your roof. And complement means you're complementing it while they're still in the track. So those are some thoughts, seven of them. Hopefully one or more or, or many or all of them will resonate with your audience. Thank you. I love those. I really do. Like They really are great skills and tools for helping families to implement these teaching soft skills, making sure not so much, doesn't even have to be teaching the soft skills, but just making space for the soft skills to happen, I think, to make it a part of your your life. I mean, of course, setting the goals and keeping track of them, that's very intentional. But it, but on top of that, just allowing space for the soft skills to happen. I like that you said compliment, because although I homeschool my kids, and I know people who homeschool, I also know a lot of people who can't homeschool. Right. And, and so I think that it's really important for people to learn about what they can do with their family that allows them to, to support these types of skills or to support more self-directed education, even though they have to send their kids to a public school. So can you tell us now more about how to, how to, to follow an educational path that will allow us to teach our children these soft skills? I would start to answer that question this way. If you asked an average parent, and this is sort of a partially rhetorical question for your audience, how many methods or how many pathways can you take in the K to 12 track, for example, you'll probably get so many varying answers like I do here in central Ohio, but I would say you're probably going to get an average answer of maybe three. So a family will say, you know, the public school, they'll say private, and then a good chunk will probably say, they'll probably use the word religious school although the term I prefer is faith-based, but either way, same thing. However, we need to unpack it further. Each state has their own state-centric construct for education, and due to the compulsory schooling statutes that are in place in all 50 states, to my research, the last compulsory schooling statute was put in around the time of the last states that were, you know, were, were um, granted entry into the unions. This is back in the 50s with Alaska and Hawaii. 
So since all 50 states have compulsory schooling statutes, that means that, and I use this term very generically, this is not a political statement, the state, the state, meaning the apparatus known as the executive branch, the legislative branch, judicial branch, and the civil service, each state has its own pathways. So for example, and I I know I'm only speaking to a percentage of your audience, I don't know what percentage, in Ohio, I have counted 18 different ways that you can educate K to 12, okay? Anything from unschooling, which has very little structure by design, all the way to the conventional public schools. So understanding that your audience is probably heavily domestic within the boundaries of the um, American borders, although you may have some international folks. I know the HACOA organization is international. Each state has to be researched that way. And when you first of all start with that construct, understand that there's many, many more than the average parent realizes. That's the first part of the answer. Go for the information so you can expand your knowledge. So are you you referring to, so if it's between unschool all the way up to conventional, so would that include things like Montessori, um, Charlotte Mason, uh, different, those different types of things, are those included in the 18 different? Uh, yes. In Ohio, what, I, what I'm doing and I'm working on this right now is I'm creating a visual matrix, a grid. Right now I can write it down in words, but words and pictures are two different things to the brain and people remember pictures better which is why my presentations for the HICOA organization have been very heavy on visuals, because I realize that. So yes, to answer your question head on, absolutely. Um, what you do is you have to take the physical structure of the building, tap, and you have to overlay it with the philosophical approach. And that's how you end up with 18 in Ohio. And there actually may be a couple I haven't uncovered yet. I like to say that I'm a student myself. I am always learning. So in other words, the 18 could easily turn into 21 over the next few years as I continue to dive into this. So in short, you need to take the physical building where the instruction's happening, including, of course, a home or a church or any other setting, and then you have to map philosophical approaches on. So philosophical approaches, I'll add a few more to the list you gave me. Um, TJED, the Thomas Jefferson approach. Um, Classical. Waldorf, the liberal arts, the Liber or Libertas model. Those are examples of philosophical approaches that you can map on top of a physical building. And then again, to bring it back to the first part of my answer, you then have to be able to go to the resource for your state or your province or whatever governing authority you live in, you know, and you need to understand what options are available because, again, the compulsory schooling statutes, at least here in the American states, are what they are. So the state apparatus still has the control. And in some states, you have a lot of leeway. In other states, you have leeway, meaning it's legal and it's certainly available. It just means that you have to go through some additional um, administrative burden. Okay. So that's the key here as you implement car is car again is complement add on replace. So when you map the philosophical on top of the physical and get the matrix and grid, then you have to, you know, you have to know where your kids or grandkids 
adopted kids are in the sense of, are they out of the system? Are they still in it? Or do you want to do like you have done, ma'am, and you want to bypass it entirely? And then that's when you kick car into the picture. So that's the key here is you never are without the ability to have some control over directing your kid's education. You just have to understand that you have to empower yourself. You have to create the autonomy and you have to understand that you're not doing anything wrong. You are doing what's right for your family. And like I said, I highly customize solutions in my business and I encourage families, whether they want to go with my, you know, with my knowledge and, and um, experience or not, you still have to design it and you have to understand that your kids have unique special gifts. You have unique special gifts and values and traits and the state apparatus, again, non-political statement does not recognize that it's a one size fits all model that was created for an era known as the blue collar industrial age. It has some agricultural age components like the 180 day year. That's from when we were doing, you know, tending crops. And then they overlaid a few other things later on as we moved out of the blue collar age and we moved into the corporate age, which was the age of white collar people going to an office building, you know, versus a farm, you know, versus a farm or a factory. But either way, the fundamental constructs of the state apparatus have not caught up with the economy. And we need to make sure we understand that when we're looking at the answering this question. So I know that's a lot. Hopefully that was insightful. Yes, of course. And I think it's really interesting that to understand and it's important to understand what type of education your child is getting so that you know to what level you need to come in and um, intervene if you need to about teaching them these soft skills. And I want to talk about why it's important to, to know what type of education your child is getting. You know, what, what are these skills leading to in the long run? Because, we, you know, with the economy changing and, and life changing so much, why do they need these skills? Well, first of all, regardless of what you as a parent, a grandparent, a guardian are doing with your life, meaning the what you do or the how you do it, which, by the way, as a quick aside, putting on my mentor hat for a second, you should always subordinate those two questions and answers to who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. Okay? The who and why questions are multitudes, acres, pick your favorite um, demonstrative word more important than what and what and how you do something. But regardless of that, you need to be engaged. You need to know what is being taught to your kids by the state apparatus. If you are in a public school, again, even if you're in a private school, secular or faith-based, they still have to subscribe to the schooling statutes. So there's various there's a Christian school not too far from where I live. And they do the exact same thing as the public schools around the area. They have the bells, they have the classes, they have the testing. So literally, it's pretty much a mirror image with some, you know, with in the case of that institution with adding a biblical comp component, right? But outside of that, it's pretty much still the same thing that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So number part one of the answer is you have to be engaged. You cannot make excuses saying I'm too busy, you know, my, you know, I'm traveling too much. 
You need to have accountability. Your kids deserve all of you, and you need to know what they're being taught because a lot of the curriculum that's coming top down is not at all focusing on these skills. Okay. You will find out of every 10 schools, regardless of the type of physical building and the type of philosophy, you will find probably one out, one or two out of every 10 buildings nationwide and even worldwide that will teach some of these skills either on an occasional basis or maybe even more regularly. Like for example, there's a charter school, a community school here in my area that actually has built their whole curriculum around life skills. So it's not, it's not out of the question. It just means that you have to be very aware and conscious of what's going on, not only in the curriculum, but also other options that you can transition into. Okay. Now the second part of the question, as I understood it, was the being prepared for the economic wins and the changes. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I wanted to, I think I want to, you know, emphasize that the purpose is that we want our kids to have these soft skills and we need these soft skills basically so that we can be adaptable. Would you say? Correct. Adaptability in the modern world is critically important. There is a professor, and I think he's since retired. I'm not even sure off the top of my head if he's alive. I apologize. I didn't get a chance to check this. Uh, Noel Tichy, and it's spelled T-I-C-H-Y. He created a construct that I believe in called, and it's called the cycle of leadership, as I recall. And basically, you need to imagine, if you will, for your audience, if you close your eyes for a minute or you have a specially vivid imagination and keep your eyes open or even go to a whiteboard if you have one, draw three circles. The inner circle is your... Um, the inner circle is your comfort zone, your familiar zone. The middle circle is a learning zone. And then the far outer circle is the panic zone. So bottom line is, is you need to be adaptable and adaptable in my mind, using Tichy's diagram here is being in your learning zone at all times. If you're in that comfort familiar zone, not a good idea long-term. You obviously certainly don't want to spend a whole lot of time out on the fringes in the panic zone because that's when you get answers from people like, you know, I'm too busy, I'm, you know, I'm overwhelmed, my plate's overflowing, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's not healthy for a family culture, going back to the original question. So adaptability is key because here's the deal. Based on a 2015 um, article that I came upon in a, in a publication called Trends Journal, Trends Journal stated that by 2020, this gentleman is a futurist. He believes that the vast majority of education by 2020 will be in bite-sized chunks of learning. So in other words, that's where we're going. Then you have this digital-based economy. And in my bio, you read... I purposely put that in there. You have the gig economy, and that's a whole other definition. I did a separate talk on that um, for Hako in the past. But you have the gig economy, you have a digital era of economy overlaying on top of each other, and you. And bottom line is, is then you have this conventional system. You have this conventional system that is, you have this conventional system that is simply not working that well because it's stuck in the past. 
Yeah, I was going to say it's outdated. There's, it's not keeping up with the changes that are happening in our, in our society, in our, con, our economy, and our culture. Exactly, because you have a component in this old system um, from the agricultural age, like I stated, from the first industrial age, and then the second industrial age. So all three of these ages are pretty much all gone. Okay, there are still elements of them still alive. You still see a few factories out there. Okay, you know, you still see some, you know, you obviously see a lot of office buildings. Trust me, they're still there. Um, And of course, there's still some farms. But what I'm saying, generally speaking, is the era, the age where that predominated for all three of those is over. So you have a digital age that's replaced it and a gig economy. There's a lot of educational innovators and I like to refer to myself at times as an educational disruptor. There's a lot of disruption going on. It's all over. And I'm doing my best where I have the opportunity to connect with these people because we all see a lot of the same things. A matter of where possible collaboration is, you know, communication and serving one another and serving the greater whole of society because society needs to keep up here culturally as well as economically, as well as, you know, even mentally and such, and, you know, numerous other layers, because if we don't, our nations, specifically, I'll speak of America, but our nations will be far worse than they could be. We'll literally have put a cement cinder block on the ability of our boat to sail forward. Yeah. And I mean, something that you've talked about is that kids need to learn, and we all do. And when I say kids, I mean, in general, everyone. <laughs> um, we need to learn how to think because of the, the way that things are changing. We've got to be able to adapt. We've got to be able to know how to think because if we can't keep up, then we're going to, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when the, the conventional jobs that we're raising our kids to, to pursue don't even exist? You know, I watched this video with my kids the other day and it was talking about how innovation that is created is is actually created to replace jobs and so uh, we have been programmed in a way to be afraid of innovation because we're afraid that it will replace jobs and our economy will collapse and and nobody will have jobs but in reality history has actually shown us that when when there is innovation it doesn't it does replace jobs but it doesn't necessarily diminish the job force if we are adaptable. So for the example that they gave was ATMs. Tell it, banks and tellers were afraid that people were going to be replaced because of the invention of ATMs. But in reality, because of the ATMs development, it allowed banks to open more branches and allowed tellers to take on new roles. And so that adaptability with the development of our technology is really is going to expand the possibilities that that we have for our future if we have those skills and the adaptability and and also in order to um, relate and interact on a larger scale because we're you know we are be able being able to connect with people all around the world from different backgrounds with different scenarios and We've got to be able to to relate. Completely agree with that. Bottom line is fear is such a deep-seated emotional reaction, and it's been here throughout our 
throughout our years, ever since humans have walked the earth, you know, there's been fear when we were moving from an agrarian society to where, you know, we were a hunter gatherer to agrarian, agrarian to more agricultural and on and on and on. There's always been fear drivers. And bottom line is these fear drivers haven't gone anywhere. There's certain elements of our culture, of our society that use them almost by default. Okay. And then there's also some that just adopt them because it's a deep-seated habit. And then you need to unwind that. You need to unlearn it. Alvin Toffer wrote a book years ago called, uh, I think it was called Future Shock, if I remember right. And you have to basically, one of the most important things you can do is unlearn things that are not productive. And unfortunately, if you are following the complement of the CAR acronym or the add-on is you literally along the way, you're having to do a lot of unlearning as well as re or new learning. And this economy we're in is nothing to fear. On the back of my new business card, I actually have that I'm a part futurist, part early adopter. And I am tracking five major trends. And then there's also a second five as well. So I think I, I, I've counted right. There's 10 trends that are huge. And the conventional approach to education, it all tracks. What, are, what do you mean by the 10 trends? I mean that these trends are very deep-seated change. And if, you, we, if we take what um, Arnold Toynbee taught us centuries ago, there's a model of history called challenge and response. Throughout history, we've done that, in, especially in the nations that are advanced and that have lasted through time. You could think of the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic was an example, the Greek city-states, for a while, the British Empire, you know, each of these, and of course now the American experience, the American um, experiment in representative constitutional republic government, Republican government. So bottom line is each of these has had a challenge and response. There have been challenges that we faced, and we just need to have a response for them. So the challenges, to use this construct, is you have these five and then another five major key trends that are happening as we speak question is, is can we respond? Because bottom line is you can either be a problem identifier, you can be a problem amplifier, or you can be a solution provider. And the response model says you have to have solutions. Can you tell us about any other books that you like to recommend to help guide in these uh, innovative thinking, adaptability, thinking in your teaching zone, those kinds of books? I came up with, and I know this is quite a few, so in the area of what I would refer to as social capital, which is your width and depth of relationships, so in other words, building the relationships in the culture, which is a soft skill, there's a book called The Art of Neighboring by Jay uh, Path, Pathnack, if I'm pronouncing it right, Art of Neighboring, teaches you how to build relationships with your neighbors, which you think is a common thing, but... A lot of neighborhoods, regardless of their condos, homes, or apartments, tell me, raise your hand. Do you know all your neighbors? You know? Number two under that category, and this is a really, really, really cute title, is Giving Candy to Strangers, a book by Stan Holden. So basically, you need to understand how to communicate with people and build relationships by the ability of how you communicate. And communication is a huge soft skill. 
Okay. When you move into a more of a leadership area, you know, thought leadership, servant leadership, you know, organic, um, there's a couple books, um, volume one and two called the eight attributes of great achievers. So you can learn from history. What did these men and women do that allowed them to be great achievers and create leadership without titles? And then lastly, in that area is an excellent book called 10,000 Horses by Ken Jennings. And the title is a little bit misleading, but it's um, in terms of the fact what it's teaching, but it's a really, really cool book. When we move into an area of people skills, um, there's two classics, one of which is probably more well-known than the other, but I'm going to mention them both. The first one that most people would recognize probably is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Dale Carnegie's book is an absolute landmark classic, and I'll tell you something. If every single person in political office read that, it would be revolutionary, um, let alone if everyone in a school setting or in you know, every family. Then the second one that's a little bit less well-known, but it's just as good, is How to Have Power and Confidence in Dealing with People. It's a book by Les Giblin. Excellent, excellent quality book. When we move into um, habits, there's a gr- two great books. One is Daniel Pink's book called Drive, which teaches what motivation really is. And there's an excellent chapter in there about the types of motivation you want to use versus the ones that have been proven over and over again and not work. Okay. And unfortunately, the conventional state funded apparatus system that, you know, again, the private institutions have to follow because it's the, the statutes are still using the old model for the most part. Then the next one is called Influencer by Carrie Patterson. Um, Carrie Patterson and several other authors wrote Influencer. It's an excellent book. Um, teaches you how to properly build influence. And again, if you're a parent, grandparent, guardian, you want to have influence, bottom-up influence in a family to have that culture. Then the last category I drew from is personalities. There's a great book called Positive Personality Profiles, lots of P's, Positive Personality Profiles by Robert Rohn, R-O-H-M. And then the last one overall is Personality Plus, which is a book written by a lady back in the 1980s named Florence Litterhauer. Um, For a while, she did speaking around the country, too, and she talks about personalities. So in summary, you got social capital with definitions. Organic thought leadership, servant leadership, people skills, personalities, and being able to identify and understand them. And then lastly, habits. You know, how do you build influence? How do you build habits? How do you properly motivate? So those are some categories I drew from from today. And I hope any of those 10 are of some help to your audience. And I thank you for allowing me to share them. Thank you so much, SJ. I really enjoyed this. And I and I would love to talk more about the college tracks and the gig economy. Those sounds very interesting to me. I, I just, I've been learning a lot about like entrepreneurship and things like that lately. And that sounds like along those, those lines of being able to self-direct your future <laughs> in a lot of ways. But in conclusion, can you just share us uh, what final tip you would leave with with parents to help them in their goals to teach their kids soft skills? One overall tip, don't put your head in the sand. One of the biggest enemies of progress and one of the biggest ways that you can basically self-sabotage your own family unit and 
basically almost, you know, take the culture that you want to build and completely go in reverse or wipe it out is self-deception. Basically, you know, deceiving yourself and or ignorance. Ignorance is not really bliss. So don't stick your head in the sand. Uh, the ostrich is the ostrich sticking his head in the sand never really changes the lion's dinner plans. And the lion, the lion here to use the metaphor to illustrate out further before we're wrapping up here, the lion here would be the economic winds, the changes, the trends I spoke of earlier, you know, this it's going to happen. And there are innovators, disruptors, creatives, visionaries that are driving these things, regardless of if you're prepared or not. So it's much better in my reason view to be prepared for the eventualities. The eventuality may hit next week. It may not hit for a decade, but if you're not prepared, you are worse for wear and your family unit will definitely be impacted and not in a good way. Thank you. That's really awesome points. I've been doing these interviews with uh, people who are talking about innovation, talking about uh, the progress of the internet and things like that. And it's, it's mind blowing. And, you know, we hear about, like, I keep seeing all these headlines about Bitcoin and things like that. And That's one of the 10, by the way. Yeah. I'm, I believe it. Cause, cause that, I don't even know. I don't know anything about them yet. But that's something that I know is, is going to change and revolutionize the economy and the way that we do things. And so I imagine that all of those things are going to be so crucial to prepare ourselves for. So thank you for your work, for what you're doing to help people to learn about these, these things and be prepared for them. And tell us, SJ, where we can find you. Uh, certainly. Um... You can look for the main website. It would be servicebeforeselfleadership.com. That's all smushed together. That's the main website. Um, you will also find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Twitter is probably my favorite. I was an early adopter. And I'm blessed to say, thankful to say that I'm almost at 7,000 followers. I'm pushing that. And again, it's not about quantity, but it just shows that, um, you know, I like to say that I'm doing something right there. So you can find me in all those social platforms. You can find me in the website. And through the website, you can reach me, um, which, you know, will send me an email. There's also a phone number out there, which can get to me. And um, I'd be more than happy to speak with any in your audience with no obligation, I'd be happy to set up time to talk with people because you know what? Any one family I help one by one is one family that's better prepared for what's coming because what's coming is major. Okay. We've talked about trends in the world over the years, things like the ATMs. So bottom, you know, Blockbuster didn't survive Netflix. Um, I can go on and on and on. So bottom line is, is, that's where we are. That's where we sit. So any of those places you can find me and it'd be my pleasure and honor to serve as many as I can. And again, no obligation. So thank you so much for allowing me to share that. Yes. Thank you so much, SJ. That was so interesting. I'm not really a futurist, but I would love to be. I think that it would be so important to understand the trends and things that he was talking about, to know 
what's coming, what to be prepared for, why we need to have soft skills so that we can be adaptable. And I'm sure that those are the types of things and the mentoring that SG offers on his website. You can go check out the link to his website and my show notes at homeandfamilyculture.com and also links to all the books that we talked about. He really recommended a lot of great books. So go and check those out at my website, homeandfamilyculture.com. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Facebook and on Pinterest and on Instagram at Family Culture Podcast and on Twitter at underscore Family Culture. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Please comment and like and share and all those wonderful things. I really appreciate your support and, and listening to my podcast and thinking about ways that we can be more intentional about our family culture. Thank you for joining me on my journey of learning how I can go from default to design in my family culture and in my life. This has basically been become my personal mission, my family mission, to learn how to be more intentional, more committed, more dedicated to designing our life and our future. <laughs>